This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part four of five of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of the Antithesis. This podcast discusses the antithesis in the world and will be split across this podcast and the next. Appreciate your attendance at these meetings and the number of you who are here is a real encouragement to me and makes the making of these speeches worthwhile. As I said last week, I would like to take two weeks about discussing this matter of the antithesis of the people of God in the midst of the world. Before we get into the subject, there are a couple of things that I wish to remind you of. In the first place, the idea of the antithesis is, of course, the light of God's glory shining in a dark and sinful world, a glory the brilliance of which is enhanced and strengthened by its contrast with sin. You will recall that we emphasized that this means that God is the sovereign also over sin, and that he sovereignly determined it for his own glory, that his glory might be revealed in all of its fullness. I have been emphasizing throughout these speeches the more practical aspect of the antithesis, and stressing our calling to walk antithetically. I want to remind you, however, of the fact that because of the nature of the antithesis, God creates the antithesis and maintains it. He creates it not only by his sovereign control of evil, but he creates it also by the work of grace performed through Jesus Christ and the power of his cross as that work is applied to and comes to manifestation in the lives of the people of God. When shortly after the fall, God announced to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heel. God created the antithesis. He created the antithesis by the work which was performed by the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ. That means, first of all, that the possibility of the people of God walking in the world antithetically lies in the work of grace which God has performed in their hearts. The antithesis is, after all, for the people of God, a life which they live out of the principle of regeneration by grace in the midst of a world of sin and darkness. It also is implied in that, that the calling of the people of God to live an antithetical life is a calling which is a privilege, a remarkable, astonishing, blessed privilege of grace that God gives to his people. It seems to us sometimes as an odious task, a heavy burden, 
difficult way, an impossible calling. But nevertheless, it is a privilege than which there is none greater to be of the party of God's covenant and to represent the cause of God and of his glory, of his covenant, and of salvation in Jesus Christ in the midst of the world. I ought also to remind you that that antithesis begins in our own sinful natures. We live out of the principle of regeneration by grace only with a small beginning. The antithesis is right here in me. And unless the antithesis comes to expression in my own heart and life and calling, it will not come to expression in the lives which we are called to live in the world. That means, among other things, that the child of God must walk in the consciousness that all the strength by which he lives an antithetical life in the world is a strength which is derived from the cross of Jesus Christ. You will find one who is interested in walking an antithetical life spending a great deal of time at the foot of Calvary. You will find him there because he knows that he has many, many sins to confess, but that forgiveness can be found in the blood of him who loved him unto death. You will find him at the cross frequently and for long periods of time, because he also knows that all the strength that enables him to walk an antithetical life is to be found in the power of his dead and risen and exalted Savior. That's where the antithesis begins for him. Nevertheless, let it be remembered that because his antithetical life begins at the foot of the cross. His life, more than anything else, is characterized also by cross-bearing. And the Roman soldiers compelled Simon the Cyrenian to bear the cross after Christ. The text in Scripture does not mean that the cross was taken from Christ's shoulders and put on Simon's. It does mean that while Christ carried his own cross to Calvary, Simon walked on behind, carrying, if you will, the foot of the cross in an astonishing and remarkable picture of discipleship. For the Lord himself had defined discipleship as taking up one's cross and following him. Simon is one of the saints whom we will meet in glory. Of that, I have no doubt. That's an important part of the antithesis, and while I'm not going to say anything more about it at this point, I am going to have considerable to say about that aspect of the antithesis, either a little later on this evening or, God willing, next week. 
In the nature of the case, when we talk about the antithesis as it comes to expression in the life of the child of God, over against the world in which he lives, it is necessary, especially in our time and in our age, to say some very hard things. I intend to say them. I want it clearly understood, however, that in saying these things, I am not setting myself on a pedestal from the summit of which I talk down to you, but I am putting myself right where you are. The hard things that need to be said are hard things which I need to hear first of all. These things are for all of us. That were not the case. I doubt whether I would have the courage to say them. But because I need to hear them, and I believe you with me need to hear them, they will have to be said. When the scriptures talk about the antithesis and the calling of the believer to live an antithetical life in the world, scriptures use a number of figures. The life of the antithesis is so all-embracing. It has so many different characteristics about it that scripture uses more than one figure to describe for us what the antithesis is like. That was already true in the old dispensation when the church was typified in the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel was called to live antithetically. There is a remarkable passage in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33 which defines the antithesis in the life of the nation of Israel and how particularly it came to expression. I refer to Deuteronomy 33, verses 27 and 28. I purposely read 27 because it underscores that the antithesis is possible for us because of the power of Almighty God. In verse 27, we read, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. Israel, then shall dwell in safety alone. That's the antithesis in the old dispensation. The hope and power of the antithesis rests in the fact that the eternal God is the refuge of Israel and that underneath Israel in all her life are the everlasting arms. The antithesis is in dwelling alone. 
For Israel, that was a geographic thing because it was typical. That did not mean, of course, that even in the nation of Israel, the antithesis was not spiritual in character. It was, but it took on a typical form. The antithesis was marked typically by the borders of the promised land. The borders of the promised land of Canaan that had been promised to the Israelites by God to Abraham already. The borders of the promised land that were only attained under the rule of David and Solomon. The borders of the promised land that extended from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates and from the Mediterranean Sea to the desert, the land of Canaan, the picture of heaven. In that land, Israel was to live alone. The command was to destroy the nations in the land that had fulfilled, that had filled the cup of iniquity. Israel never quite did that. Already in the days of Joshua and the elders that outlived Joshua, the nation never succeeded in driving the heathen from the borders of Canaan. The result was the disastrous history of the judges, in which repeatedly Israel fell into the sins of the heathen. That too, however, interestingly enough, was under the sovereign control of God. There is a passage with which chapter 3 of the book of Judges begins. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. Notice that, which the Lord left. It was Israel's failure, Israel's sin that these nations were left, but the Lord left them to prove Israel by them even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. Sovereignly, the Lord left these nations in the land of Canaan so that generations to come who knew not how to fight might learn to fight the battles of Jehovah. It's an interesting description of the antithesis and how it operates within the church. I would almost say that in the new dispensation, According to the Lord's own word in the parable of the tares in the field in Matthew 13, the Lord leaves the reprobate seed in the church without making a church composed only of elect in order that the generations to come might learn how to fight. Apply that once to our lives. 
to the history of the Protestant Reformed churches. Our fathers fought a bitter battle, two battles. The battle of 1924, in order to preserve the doctrine and truth of sovereign and particular grace. And in 1953, to preserve the doctrine of an unconditional covenant. But a generation has risen which knows not how to fight. Many of us here tonight belong to that generation. And so the Lord does not give us a pure church in which are only to be found the elect because we have to learn to fight. There are other reasons, perhaps, that you can mention, as Jesus points out in his parable in Matthew 13. But according to Judges 3, that's an important one. There are different figures in the New Dispensation which Scripture uses to define and explain to us what the antithesis in the midst of this world is like for the people of God. There is an interesting passage in Ephesians 2 where only brief mention is made of a very important aspect of that antithesis. I refer to verse 19, where he is, in which chapter Paul is speaking of the mystery of salvation in the gathering of a church from Jews and Gentiles in which the middle wall of partition that separated them throughout the whole of the old dispensation is broken down and Jews and Gentiles become one. This is how he puts it. Now therefore... Ye are no more strangers and foreigners writing to the Gentiles now in distinction from the Israelites in the Old Testament when the antithesis was marked by the boundaries of the land of Canaan. Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. If one would preach a sermon on that text, which is altogether possible and would be profitable, minister would have to point out that this is one reason why in the old dispensational church the nation of Israel was a commonwealth, a nation, a kingdom. Not only the church, but a kingdom. And so much does the emphasis fall in the Old Testament on the fact that Israel was a kingdom, that the premillennialists can't see anything else in the Old Testament but the fact that Israel was a kingdom. And Israel is the kingdom people. The church belongs to the new dispensation, at which point, of course, they are dead wrong. They do not understand that the church 
is also a kingdom. Only the fulfillment of the kingdom which had its typical form in the nation of Israel with the throne of David on Mount Zion. That kingdom is a kingdom in which we are citizens. The kingdom is heavenly, as Jesus points out again and again and again in the gospel narratives. The kingdom is not from this earth. It is from heaven. The kingdom cometh not by observation, but it is within you. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my soldiers would fight for me. But my kingdom is not from thence. That needs emphasis in our day. I'm not going to take the time tonight to emphasize it. That needs emphasis today because the prevailing theory among conservatives in Presbyterian and Reformed circles is precisely on an earthly kingdom. And the believer's calling in the world is to establish that earthly kingdom insofar as he has the time and opportunity and the circumstances make it obtainable. That's the dream. That was the dream of Dr. Abraham Kuyper, an earthly kingdom. When Jesus says flatly, no, it's not that. That's the error of all the post-millennialists and all the reconstructionists. That's the fundamental error of those who find the Christian's calling pretty much to be limited to making this world a better place to live, by which they mean making this world a better place because it is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, so that every institution of society is brought, as Dr. Abram Kuyper said, pro riga for the king. Against all of that, the believer says, no, the antithesis is that the child of God lives as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In the world. He is in the world, but not of the world. His citizenship papers are in a file cabinet in heaven, accessible to the angels. He has a calling in the world, but that calling has its origin in and its definition by the power of the kingdom of heaven, of which he is a citizen. If you want to know the characteristics of that kingdom of heaven, and you want to know specifically what the calling of the citizens of the kingdom is, then I suggest you read the Sermon on the Mount. That's called, and rightly so, the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven. You might be interested enough in that Kingdom of Heaven to inquire, first of all, concerning those who are citizens of it. 
And just as soon as the answer is given you to that question, you will discover that you are dealing here with a kingdom which is in every respect different from anything that is known here in the world because those who are kingdom, are citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those who you will find weeping. Those whom you will discover are broken in spirit. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who are meek, not brave, stalwart, gung-ho soldiers fighting in the cause of country and freedom, but the meek. What strange citizens who wants a kingdom with citizens of meek people, of weeping people, of those who are broken in spirit. But the explanation of that lies in the fact that the kingdom of which they are citizens doesn't belong to this world in any sense of the word. You want to know what their calling is, what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? There it all is, writ at large in the constitution of the kingdom. Ye are the salt of the earth, ye are the light of the world. It hath been said by them of old time, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for them that hate you, do good to them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Here in the kingdoms of the world, it is blessed to become rich and wealthy. In the kingdom of heaven, the blessedness of the citizens lies exactly in an opposite direction. Blessed are ye when men shall persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the fathers, the prophets that were before you. What a strange kingdom. The kingdoms of this world urge you to seek the broad way, the easy way, the way that is free of trouble, the way that is filled with pleasure, the way that is simple and pleasurable to walk. The way of the kingdom of heaven is entrance through a narrow gate through which you have to crawl on your hands and knees and squeeze yourself through. And having arrived on the other side of the gate on the walk, you are confronted with an almost impossible mountain to climb, a road filled with rocks and dangers on every side, a road that requires constant unceasing attention, a road from which it is a daily threat to fall. Another figure which Scripture makes abundant use of is the figure of pilgrims and strangers in the earth. You will find that figure used in that powerful and moving passage in Hebrews 11, which reaches back once again to the Old Testament and summons up from the Old Testament the stirring call of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
beginning with verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises any more than you have. Although you have received them in principle, they lie beyond because we are still strangers. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Something like John Bunyan's vision of the celestial city. As Christian walked his pilgrimage. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. And, and the idea is because they were persuaded of them, they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. If they had been mindful of the country from which they had come out, Ur of the Chaldees, with its idols, its pleasures, its glorious culture, they would have had opportunity to have returned. But now they seek a better city that is in heaven. And then you have that soul-stirring statement from God. And God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. That's pilgrims and strangers. If you want to know how a pilgrim and stranger conducts himself in the earth, I recommend to you that you read Peter's first epistle. I recommend, however, that you read it, not as it is here divided up into chapters in our King James Version, but that you read it from beginning to end. It's Christ's letter to his people who are strangers. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm quoting 1 verse 1, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and so on. Those are not Jews of the dispersion, as some commentators like to make them, because he further defines those strangers in verse 2 with these powerful terms. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There you have it. Strangers, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit, called unto obedience and sprinkling of blood. When you read First Peter, and I recommend you do that tonight yet, if you can, but certainly sometime this week, read it from beginning to end without paying attention to the chapter breaks and the verse breaks, which were not in Peter's epistle when he sent this to the saints in Asia Minor. Read it as a letter from Christ to you. Receive it that way.
receive it as a letter that you as a bride receives from your bridegroom who is far, far away from you and who is concerned about how you live in his absence. And so he writes you this letter. Read it that way. And you will discover that Peter talks in this letter about how pilgrims and strangers are to live in every relationship of their lives. They are instructed how they must live, for example, in relationship to their magistrates. In chapter 2, they are instructed how they must live in relationship to their employers. If they are so favored that they are working for a Christian employer, Peter will tell you how to conduct yourself towards a Christian employer. But if you're working for a cruel heartless boss who makes you work like a slave and who will not pay you sufficient wages. Peter will tell you then too how pilgrims and strangers walk in relationship to such an employer. And he will caution you against becoming bitter and hateful and angry with your employer and refusing to give him what is justly his due for Christ's sake. Peter will tell husbands how to live towards their wives. And Peter will tell wives how to live towards their husbands, even if their husbands are unbelieving husbands. Above all, Peter will tell you how to live in the midst of this world in relationship to people that are wicked. And he will tell you at great length what your responsibilities and calling are. 1 Peter 3.15 Be ready always to give an answer to those who ask of you a reason for the hope that is within you. The hope that shines in your life of a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The light of which city unbelievers see shining in your eyes. They will ask you about it. Be ready to give an answer. But persecution will come. And a great part of the epistle is devoted to persecution. How you as a pilgrim and stranger must act towards your persecutors. And what must be your attitude towards persecution. Because you are a pilgrim and a stranger. All sorts of interesting information that Christ says to you and to me. This is my letter to you. My bride, my love, as you wait for the time when I come to take you to myself, read it that way. Then you will understand what a pilgrim and a stranger is. Another figure which the apostle uses is the figure of a soldier. That was used already typically in the Old Testament. That was the force of Deuteronomy 33. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and I will drive out the enemy from before you. But that doesn't mean you sit 
on a rocking chair on your front porch and twiddle your thumbs while I drive the enemy out. I'm going to engage you in the battle and I'm going to give you the armor you need and the weapons of your warfare which are essential and with which alone you can fight. And you are called to fight in the confidence of victory. Classic passages, of course, Ephesians 6. By the way, read the Psalms that way sometimes. We know that our enemies are spiritual enemies. The enemies of sin. The enemies of the darkness of this world. But read the Psalms sometime that way, as, you, as David describes the enemies that face him and God's people, and describes them as they are arrayed before him on the battlefield. Psalm 61. This psalm was written when Joab returned from battle against the kings, in which 30,000 were slain. And you will notice, lo and behold, the enemies of which David speaks are not enemies which are a threat only to his body, because they come armed with swords, but they are a threat to his soul. And he repeatedly speaks of that. It's the typical language of the Old Testament with which the Psalms are filled, which summon the people of God to battle. But as I say, the classic passage is in Ephesians 6. Finally, I read from verse 10. Finally, my brethren, not finally because I want to tack this on the end before I forget. Finally, because there is no better way that with, for me to close this epistle than by reminding you, you live not on a playground, but on a battlefield. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. What kind of armor will do for that kind of a battle? Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. I like that. And having done all to stand. It's the picture of a warrior, a Christian warrior, on the battlefield. The warrior who has fought long and hard in the cause of God and of his truth and righteousness. It is the picture of a warrior whose helmet is knocked askew by the fierceness of battle, whose sword is bloodied and broken, whose armor is pierced here and there, who is wounded with blood running down his legs, and over his face, who is desperately weary beyond description. 
who can hardly lift his arm to make one last swinging blow at the enemy, whose shield is stuck with countless errors. But he's standing. All the enemy corpses are strewn over the battlefield, but he stands, and having done all to stand, that's the Christian warrior who fights in the cause of God, the armor of God. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye are able to, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always. That's the Christian warrior. When he, you would think he should be on his feet, swinging his sword, he's on his knees praying. Because the strength by which he fights is a strength that comes to him from the Lord Christ, the captain of his salvation. That's the antithesis. You want to know what it's like? It's a battle. And then finally, there's one more figure in Scripture with which you are all familiar and to which I have already alluded. And that is that the church is the bride of Christ. From a certain point of view, I suppose you could say that Christ and his bride are married. Maybe it was at that moment at the altar where the minister said, I now pronounce you man and wife, that the bridegroom was called away. And for a long time, an interminably long time, the bride doesn't see her bridegroom. He's called away on pressing business. Such pressing business that if the bridegroom did not perform it, the bride could never realize the joys of marriage to the bridegroom. But in the meantime, while the bride waits, what is her calling? Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith your God. And touch not the unclean thing. Keep your garments unspotted from the world. You're my bride. You wear wire in this world your wedding dress, which is the righteousness of Christ. Don't let it get solid. Don't prostitute it in adulteries and fornication. There's good reason, you know, why James 
in chapter 4 says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. This is to the church, to you, and to me. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's a spiritual adultery. You know, this is a little bit parenthetical, perhaps, but it will underscore the point. There are versions of the Bible. I suspect the NIV is one of them. Although I have not checked, that omits that expression in the text. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. You won't find that in all versions. It's a little bit too strong a medicine, I suspect, for people to take. When Christ himself points his accusing fingers at you and me and says, your relationship to the world, rather than being one of the bride of Christ is to be characterized by adultery. Men and women alike, spiritual adultery. It's a flirtation, an affair with the world as the bride of Christ. It is because of that that First John 2 says what it does. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You understand? You're the bride of Christ. You're in the world. You're the bride of Christ. Love not the world. You cannot love Christ and the world both. You understand that, do you not? Even if you say, yes, but I love the world less. If I would tell my wife that, she'd put me out of the house, and rightly so. I love you, dear, but I love this other woman too, only not as much. What would happen to us if we did that or said that? No wonder that Christ, through James, is not hesitant to call us adulterers and adulteresses. We are the bride of Christ, but that makes us guilty of adultery. That's a powerful figure of the antithesis. The question is, how are we to love our enemies if we are commanded not to love the world? 
you are aware of the fact that Jesus himself tells us this as a part of the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. We are to love our enemies. We are to love our enemies in the first place because God loves his enemies. And we must reflect in this world the love of God. We are his enemies. The love which God has for us is a love which he has for us, not because we have made ourselves his friends, but because he is revealing the power of his love for himself in loving us who are his enemies. That's why we must be children of our Father in heaven, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6. In the second place, we are to love our enemies because the Lord has not revealed to us, for which I am every day thankful, who his people are and who are not. And the scriptures are quite intent on telling us we must not make any effort on the basis of what we see in people to decide who his people are and who are not his people. He tells us, for example, that we must not say, well, I don't have to love the magistrate because no, none of those wretched, miserable thieves up there in Washington ever did any good to anybody anyway. We must love them too. Because God, as Paul tells Timothy, saves magistrates. We must not say because a woman is a prostitute, well, I certainly don't have to love her because God saved Rahab. We don't have to say that we need not love a murderer because God loved David, and David was a murderer. So God saves all kinds of people, and people no matter how great their sins may be. Nevertheless, and here is of course the point, what does it mean to love? And that explains to my mind precisely what Jesus means. To love in the fullest and most complete sense of the word is to enter into a relationship of fellowship and friendship. A husband who loves his wife has fellowship with her. She's his friend. The saints in the church have fellowship together in the communion of the saints. Parents love their children in the first place because their children are members with them of the church of Jesus Christ. But there is a sense too in which Jesus says you must love your enemies, and that is this. We must have the desire in our hearts that those whom God places upon our pathway be brought into our fellowship that we may have the riches and fullness of communion with them too. We know not whether they are elect or not. And as Jesus makes clear in the same context, God may use us to save them. Let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. To love, therefore, our neighbor is, first of all, to love the man who is on my pathway. It's not to love the man who lives in the jungles of Zimbabwe 
boy, I can love that man to beat the band. He's the easiest person in the world to love because he's 4,000 miles away and I don't have to do anything. But the guy who keeps bumping me and getting in my way, he's a different story, but God put him there. My wife is my neighbor. My children are my neighbors. But those who come upon my pathway are my neighbors. Even those who come upon my pathway as my persecutors are my neighbors. Love them. But in loving them, express your desire that they be brought into the fellowship of the people of God, where love reaches its perfection, its climax, its fullness, its perfection of fellowship. And that means that if they're in need, as James makes clear, you satisfy their need. If they come to your door and say, I'm hungry, you don't say to them, James says, by all means, go away and be filled. God will take care of your needs. Trust in the Lord. He will certainly give you food to eat, if only you will trust in Him. Be warm, be clothed, James says. That's a dead faith. But you help him in his need. But you don't just help him, but you tell him. I am doing this to you because Christ has been merciful to me, an unworthy sinner. And I want you to know the mercies of Christ. And I come in the name of Christ, with the mercies of Christ, to feed you when you're hungry. You must repent. That's loving him, isn't it? I want you to be saved. Repent of your sin. That's the only way. Love isn't wishy-washy, muddy, sentimental slop. Not even in the church. Love seeks the salvation of the one who is the object of our love because that's the best, that's the highest good, that's the most wonderful thing that can happen to a man. That he be saved. Repent and believe in Christ. If God by his Spirit is pleased to save such a one and bring him into the fellowship of the church, love flourishes and love blossoms and love reaches its perfection in a bond of fellowship. But our witness is the same two-edged sword that the preaching of the gospel is so that it is also the power to harden. And if that person is not a child of God, he will say to you sooner or later, as you try to help him, get out of here, you blankety-blank so-and-so with your blankety-blank groceries. I don't want to see your face again. I can't stand your incessant preaching. And so you know That while you may still pray for him, he is an unbeliever. And that love has accomplished its purpose according to God's will in him too. That's how we must love our neighbor. To love the world as John defines it in 1 John 2 means exactly have fellowship with it. Don't do that. 
Don't have fellowship with the world. Love your enemies, pray for them that persecute you, but don't have fellowship with them. That's not only perfectly possible, that's the life of a pilgrim. I'm on my way to glory, man, can't you see? I'm on, I'm heaven bound to the celestial city, come with me and join me on my path and we'll walk together. And when you need me, I'll help you. And when I need you, you'll help me. And together we'll struggle on the difficult pathway of our life until we arrive at the gates of the celestial city. That's what we say by our walk and by our conversation and by our helping those who are in need, who are upon our pathway. All right, then we're going to get on with a story. And... <coughs> Although our time is getting near its end, I want to talk exactly about that as an expression of the antithesis in our life in the world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, pilgrims and strangers, soldiers, the bride of Christ. I want to talk about the antithesis as it comes to expression, therefore, in the calling not to have fellowship with the world. What does that mean? I want to point out to you, first of all, and it seems to me this is crucial and fundamental to our discussion of this particular subject, that there is what Scripture calls a development of sin in the world. That's why James, not James, John in 1 John 2 connects the admonition not to love the world nor the things of the world with the presence of Antichrist. The world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. But Antichrist is in the world. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. Now, I wish I could go into this whole subject of the de development of sin in more detail than I can. The development of sin is a fundamental, crucial doctrine of Scripture, which lies underneath our calling with regard to the antithesis. Let me mention first of all that God is sovereign over this too. I don't see how it's possible to explain any of the doctrines of the Christian faith. I don't see how it's possible to understand the antithesis without the absolute sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over the development of sin. He is sovereign over the development of sin in order that not only is the light of His glory revealed in the darkness of the sin of this present time, but that the light of the glory of His holiness is finally, ultimately, 
fully revealed when the glory of heaven in all of its beauty and perfection is in contrast with the awful blackness of hell. That's ultimately it. Just as salvation is due to election, and according to the Belgic Confession, that all the riches of God's mercy and grace and love may be revealed, hell stands there as the fact of the revelation of God's justice, just hatred of sin. And not only is the blackness of hell the background against which shines the light of the eternal day, but it is also the backdrop of the wondrous mercy and grace of God that has saved you and me from that and made us such shining lights in the firmament of the heavens as we are through the power of Christ. And so, in order that God's justice may be realized, sin develops from creation to the end of the world. Now, it is my conviction that if you study the Scriptures, you have to come to the conclusion that the development of sin is inseparably connected with the cultural mandate. Subdue the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. When the fall came and made it impossible for man to do anything at all that was pleasing to God because of total depravity, he still stood in front of the cultural mandate and he still possessed the ability to fulfill the cultural mandate. He can still have children. He can still raise them. He can still subdue the earth. But, and here's where the antithesis runs a straight line and every other theory veers off. But, as he fulfills the cultural mandate, he does so as a sinner, totally depraved, who makes use of every part of the creation and every power in it to sin. And he can't do anything else. In other words, all the mighty deeds of wicked man, in all the tremendous advances of medical technology and science and industry, all of man's efforts to explore the heavens, the successful liftoff of the spacecraft from Cape Kennedy this morning, I guess, Marvelous in the eyes of men are all the work of subduing the earth. And what wonderful things he can do when he subdues the earth. They're astonishing. He can build a computer. And he can improve that computer every time I turn around. I don't have my computer unpacked yet. 
And he's knocking at my door with another model that has just been developed, which is far superior to the one that I haven't even got plugged in yet because he's so busy subduing the earth. This one is more powerful. This one has more memory. You can do more things with this one. If only you have this one, this and this and this. Communications. I can talk to someone anywhere in the United States with a little phone that's about that big that I've put in my suit coat pocket with my peppermint. That's subduing the earth. But you see, as he subdues the earth and as he discovers the powers that God put in the creation, and as he uses the powers that God put in the creation to make all kinds of marvelous instruments of every conceivable sort that do what sometimes we in a foolish moment of astonishment call miracles, he does in the service of sin. I believe that therefore, though man totally depraved does not become more, total, more totally depraved as time goes on, which is obviously nonsense, the total depravity of man's nature comes to fuller, more violent, more corrupt, more depraved, more significantly evil ways than it has ever come to manifestation before. Dr. Abram Kuyper said, be thankful for God's common grace that we have all these marvelous inventions, that instead of lighting this kerosene lamp at my desk so that I can write my standard bear article at the light of a, of a kerosene lamp, I can flick a switch and have all the light I want. Thank God for that, for his common grace, because the wicked developed that under the power of common grace and they use it to serve God because the whole of the cultural mandate is used by wicked men even to bring everything under the rule of Christ. And the Reconstructionist says, get on the bandwagon and join the world in their pursuit of culture and in their subduing of the earth because with every invention they're bringing the kingdom of Christ nearer. And soon, so wonderful will all the inventions of men become that the kingdom of Christ is here. The believer says, no, 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 a thousand times no. Man is totally depraved. Grace is particular and sovereign. Wicked man fills the cup of iniquity. That's why love not the world nor the things of the world. Because... Man is busy exploiting the creation in the service of sin. I believe that before the end comes, every power of creation will be uncovered. And every power of creation will be used by wicked man to its fullest potential. In realizing modern inventions, creating modern inventions that make the things which startle us today look like kindergarten toys. We ain't seen nothing yet, I'm convinced. 
because man is wicked, because sin develops, all under the sovereign control of God. Do you believe in restraint of sin? A man man asks me. Why, of course I believe in the restraint of sin. Who could be fool enough not to? But it isn't the restraint of sin, but the spirit of grace in the heart of man that enables him to do good. But it is the sovereign, almighty power of God, whereby he controls and directs the affairs of men in order that his purpose may be accomplished and the world become ripe for judgment and his justice revealed in his punishment of sin when the world is destroyed. It must be so obvious that man is sinful that when everyone stands before the judgment seat of Christ, everyone, Satan included, and all his demons must say as they stand before an eternity in the abyss, it's right that we go there because this is what we did with God's work. The Christian is aware of that. Don't you know, John says, it's the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. In the kingdom of Antichrist, then the development of sin reaches its climax. There isn't any more, any other way to sin. There are no more powers in the creation to uncover. There are no more inventions to be pressed in the service of the blasphemy of God. There isn't anything to do anymore. We have sinned to the full extent of our ability. Yes. Then Christ says the world is ripe for judgment. The Christian is aware of that. This is what's happening out there. He doesn't look with favor upon that world. He says, this is what is happening out there. I have to stay away from it. Because that's the development of sin pointing inevitably towards the Antichrist. And so I have to quit. I want to talk a little bit in this connection yet about corporate responsibility, and I have to talk about is there any possibility of any cooperation at any level with any wicked people, cooperation, and then I want to talk finally about our use of the things of this world. To me, that's extraordinarily important. That includes our entanglement with the things of this world. That includes what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to take up our cross. That includes our use of the things of this world, and it includes our attitude towards these things. Those are the things that I want to talk about yet, important questions to my mind. May God bless what we have talked about tonight and hope to see you next week, God willing.
and we're going to discuss some of these things. Lord our God and Heavenly Father, the God of the antithesis, who has made us people of the antithesis, who has made us by the power of thy grace, pilgrims and strangers in the earth, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, warriors in the battle of faith, the bride of Christ, and who has called us to live as such in a world of sin and darkness where sin develops where it must develop in order that the riches of thy justice may be shown as well as the riches of thy grace and mercy and love in Christ Jesus to us poor sinners. What a great blessedness is ours to be rescued from that world and to have the glorious calling to represent thy cause we know that it entails suffering, persecution, hatred, scorn, mockery. As long as thou art with us, O God, we don't care. We will endure all things to be with Christ. Set our feet firmly on that pathway that leads to glory. Give us strength daily to walk in it, in our home, in our work, in our church, in the world. May thy name be glorified in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations. Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day Sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.